Hi, just before we start, just to let you know that this episode contains some foul language. Hi Dad. Hi Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe in my head. The thing is though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hi and welcome to What Should I Think About. I'm Stephen and uh, today I'm on my own. Celine's on holiday at the moment so um, I'm on my own but I'm not lonely because I've got uh, a great guest uh, that I'm looking forward to talking to. We've got Daniel O'Brien. Daniel is an educator and um, he's got a really interesting Uh, backstory I suppose but um, we're going to talk about education and uh, what it means to make sense of life afterwards really so welcome to the podcast Daniel. Thank you Stephen and thank you for having me on it's uh, great to be here it's a it's a good morning here in uh, sunny southern California I know it's uh, early evening there where you are. That's right the sun's shining through your windows and we've got gales so uh, that's uh, pretty typical. Uh, right, okay, would you like to uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself then please, Daniel, uh, a bit about your background, why you're interested in the subject of high control groups, cults, and so on? Sure, well, uh, um, a little bit of my background. I, I was raised in not a really religious setting. Um, my parents divorced when I was very young, three. My dad had been raised as a Catholic, but he had left that faith and was basically secular my mom really had no particular preferential leanings. When I was a teenager, I started becoming interested in, as many young people do, the search for meaning in life and getting answers to those difficult questions. And I explored different things with not a lot of interest at first, but then in my early 20s, I really started diving deeply into the subject. And a lot of it was really motivated by my interest in music And um, I started studying the history of music, Western music, um, through mostly European. When I I say Western, I mean Western civilization, particularly interested in Baroque music. But as beautiful as the music of, say, Johann Sebastian Bach is, without understanding what was going on historically, it's absent of any context. Hmm. So that led me into studying about history, and that led me into studying about religion, and one thing led to another. And without going through all the boring, tedious details, one day two Jehovah's Witness girls knocked on my door and we started a conversation and I was interested. Um, started studying, as witnesses call it, yep. with uh, one of the elders in the congregation. And I found it intriguing, but I wasn't really that into it until something happened in my life. I had had a relationship with a young woman and I thought we were madly, deeply, truly in love. And um, then she ended up having a relationship with someone else and I was heartbroken. It's not all that uncommon, obviously, Mm -hmm. things like that happen. And not to dwell on that, but I didn't realize at the time that in that emotionally vulnerable period, that's when I became 
Well, that's when I started going to the Kingdom Hall, the the church, as Jehovah's Witnesses mm -hmm. call it. And I started going there a lot. And then I started getting indoctrinated a lot. And then before I knew it, I was in. I was hooked. I got right. baptized in 1984, an Orwellian irony, which I didn't appreciate at the time, but I do now. And so I was in the religion. I, I, As I do everything in my life, if I am serious about it, I took it very seriously. Yeah. I got very involved. Um, eventually, I was appointed to a ministerial servant and then an elder, got married, had kids. And so then in the early 2000s, I started to realize that there were a lot of things that just weren't right about this. Mm. Um, and, and I could go into a lot of details. There were many, many, many things about it. Um, one thing that really stood out in my mind one day, I was out with a group in our proselytizing work and um, an, an older woman in the group made the comment about her children and, and witnesses have this big belief that it's a doomsday cult that, that God's going to bring Armageddon and kill everybody except for the faithful, of yeah. course, who are only Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, she had three children, two of which had left the religion and were what witnesses call disfellowshipped. Other religions might use a term like excommunicated or, mm -hmm. or something. But in other words, they were completely shunned, completely cut off, cut off. And she made the comment that when Armageddon comes, if she had to walk over the bodies of her dead children, that's what she was going to do. And I remember at that time thinking to myself, fuck, I'm in a cult. I'm in a cult. Anyways, I, I shut that down for a long time. A few years later, my um, wife at the time, now my ex, she had shared with me something. Uh, by the way, she was born into the religion. Right. Yep. She had shared with me a piece of literature from an older Awake magazine, one of the flagship publications of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the, the corporate um, corporate organization behind what most people know as Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyway, she shared this magazine with me that was published when she was just 10 years old in 1969. And paraphrasing, it said, you know, you don't have to worry if you're a young person. You'll never get old. You'll never graduate high school. You'll never yeah. go to college. You'll never have a career. You'll never have a family because Jehovah God is going to bring paradise by killing everybody except for Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought when she said that to me, you you must be wrong. They never said that. Really. Well, of course, I checked into it and they did say mm. that. And that was the beginning of the end for me. That was around 2002 or 2003. Mm. And it's like a tapestry. You begin pulling on one thread and then another. And pretty soon the, the whole picture, which in this case was a fantasy, uh, fell apart. And um, I started discovering other things that were basically hypocritical of the organization. And particularly as an elder, I was aware of the problems with um, child sexual abuse in the organization, which was largely covered up. Another thing that I shut down for a long time. Hmm. And then I realized, yes, I, I was in a cult and I needed to find a way out. I tried to find a way out for my whole family, realized my wife was never going to leave, tried to see how can I get out with my children and, and it took a long time, and, and eventually uh, I myself was disfellowshipped and cast out of the religion. Mm -hmm. That was in 2009, and um, although I did make efforts to officially get reinstated in a, in a futile attempt to maintain a relationship with my children, it's been almost 13 years, and I've had little or no contact with either of them, mm -hmm. even though one only lives a block away, and I drive by his house a couple of times a week. 
um, that's a very frustrating and painful thing. I'm really sorry to hear that. It's, it's well, thank been... you. And, and as I know, you know, all too well, Stephen, it's way too common in mm-hmm. not just this cult, but in any cult. And in fact, that's one of the things that, that helps us identify. It, it, it yeah. is a cult that there's no legitimate, honorable way to leave. Um, so anyways, after leaving, I had a lot of questions about, well, why did I ever believe any of this stuff that now I think is all all nonsense, much of which is, in fact, harmful. It destroys family relationships. And that's a long process. And I I know we're going to get into talking about that. And then after deconstructing that, well, how can I rebuild something that's meaningful for my life? Um, During that time, ironically, once I started to realize that I was in a cult, I made the decision in 2003 to return to school university, higher education, something which Jehovah's Witnesses totally disdain. Mm, yeah. And to, to say they discourage it is putting it mildly. Mm, they, mm. they really try to put the kibosh on it. Mm. I decided to go back to school, got my teaching credential, became a, a certified, qualified teacher here in the United States. And later on, I even continued and added um, sciences to my credential and even got a master's degree in education. And so I'm still in education. I'm a high school teacher here in the United States. Um, I'm not sure what you would call that's the higher grades in in the UK. Um, I teach children who are 14 through 18. Yeah, so uh, we, we call it high school now, really. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, okay. they, they tend to call them GCSEs. But um, yeah, that's... Um, mm-hmm. And then A levels, of course. Um, then then you go on to uni. So, uh, yeah, okay, right. that's that's really interesting. Thank you for that little sort of potted um, potted history, uh, Daniel. Given that uh, the over overarching theme of of today, I think, is going to be around knowledge and education, and um, sort of making sense of the world through reasons, thought. I suppose um, clearly, you you're an intelligent person. You heard a message that you found interesting. You mentioned that there was a a particular vulnerability at that time because you, you, uh, your relationship had broken down. Yes. Um, now, you know, now we talk about um, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I look at that now and I just think, how could I ever have believed it? That's right. It's a really important question. So the doctrines, the um, so how did you come to believe in you know the resurrection of the dead? I mean, I remember when I was growing up, it was like f- uh, pictures of children coming back from the dead, uh, the gravestone next to them, and their parents right. are hugging them. You know, that's a ridiculous concept um, in my in my mind, um, but I believed it. Um, but it's still, when you think about it, it sounds ridiculous. And all of the other sort of doctrinal points, like everybody's going to be destroyed at Armageddon, um, all of these, this stuff that you must have gone through in your Bible study. Um, how how did you, how can you explain how you came to believe all of that um, of those doctrines? Well, the short answer is I didn't. Oh, so let me give you the longer answer. Okay. <laughs> so. Even before I started, and, and your our listeners won't know this, but I'm putting this in scare quotes when I say study. And uh, you did use the expression Bible study. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses, for those who don't know, do use the Bible. I consider it now as mostly a prop. Primarily Jehovah's Witnesses, again in scare quotes, study their own publications, yes. which are largely self-referential 
continuously referring to older publications. Well, the Watchtower of 1973 said this, right? <laughs> anyways, citing that as authority. Yeah. Um, anyways, even before I started this study with Jehovah's Witnesses, there were certain things that just resonated with me. Yep. Um, looking around the human condition and seeing um, crime, seeing poverty, seeing illness, seeing injustice, things like this. And, and, and frankly, I was selfish. The idea, so I had this idea at one point that I was going to be the greatest guitar player in, in the world and the most masterful composer. And it's a conversation for another time, I was able to get my abilities to a very high level. Greatest, nobody ever gets there, but we can become great. But anyways, putting that aside, I resented the idea that no matter how good I got, one day I would die and it would be over. And so when the witnesses came to my door and they had this message that God's going to solve all these problems, an end to crime, an end to hunger, an end to poverty, an end to illness. Um, I'm blind in one eye and have been since I was nine. The thought that the, the thought that one day I would be able to see again with two eyes and something I haven't experienced in over 50 years, that was exciting to me. The fact that I can continue to write music forever, that was exciting to me. So all that other doctrinal stuff, I tried to accept it. And, and so I've always been a good student. It's just something that's that's in my DNA. When I started the Bible study, I would take copious notes and um, I was reading through the Bible on my own and I would go through and anytime I had a question, I would write it down. And, and the, um, the witness I was studying with, sometime I would ask him questions and he had what now I know is a very manipulative, evasive technique. He would say, that's a great question. Don't worry, we'll get to that later. <laughs> or you'll understand when you know more. Well, after 10 or 15 years, and I'm super studious, not only reading the Bible on my own, but reading the copious amounts of Watchtower literature we yeah. were forced to digest, whether we want it to or not, I came to realize that there is never going to be an answer to these questions, which is interesting because as a friend of mine who who's also a witness once said, and I thought it was a compliment when he said this, I now understand it. It's a disparaging remark. <laughs> Witnesses have an answer for everything but and they do they have copious volumes you almost any question you could wonder about there's some reference in the watchtower you can look it up in the awake or the watchtower of whatever but a lot of those answers are complete nonsense and don't so make not very good yeah they're not for but it is an answer it doesn't mean it's Correct. a good one and so that's why later on i came to realize um when when my friend paul had said this to me that he was actually not making a compliment but i didn't get it at the time so, so again, the short answer is there are a lot of doctrinal things that I never really accepted. I tried to. I wanted to be a, a good witness, especially when I was a, an elder, which is sort of the witness equivalent of a priest, hmm. albeit without all the training that, say, a Catholic priest goes to seminary. Or the salary. <clears throat> Pardon me? Or the salary. Yes. It's a completely unpaid position, isn't it? Which is a whole other subject. The, mm. the constant stringing along, do more for Jehovah, mm. and, and it's exhausting, and it's all volunteer, and no matter what you do, it's never enough. It's never yeah. good enough, yeah. and, and yeah. 
But that, that's another manipulative means of control that, that many cults use. And so, um, no, I don't think I ever believed much of it. I wanted to. And, and then, you know, by then you're so deeply in. Like I said, I had a wife who was who was raised in the religion and all of her family had been raised in the religion. And she was from a family of, of um, seven. Three of them had, had left the religion or been kicked out and they were disfellowshipped and shunned. And then I had kids and, and you're, you're just so into it that, yes. like I said, from the time I realized I was in a cult and wanted out to the time I actually exited. And, and frankly, my exit was as many people do, because you don't know how to leave. There is no honorable, legitimate way to leave. It was messy. Mm. Uh, that was about six or seven years. So we, we can think about your, your leaving yeah. process now and um, that, that, that whole that's that whole way of thinking that you've been trained in for the last what 20 years um into this this uh this way of thinking about the world about the way of thinking about knowledge um and you had to start readjusting all that so you've talked a little bit about going back to school and doing education could you tell us a little bit about that process of rejigging your thinking um is there anything you can tell us about that Sure. I'm happy to. And so one of the things that's interesting to me in retrospect, since I hadn't been raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I had been to college before, I I got a two-year degree in in business, actually, that I had to stuff down and put aside some of my critical thinking skills that I had. for those that don't know, <clears throat> witness meetings seem to be educational. They talk about a Bible educational work. It superficially resembles a school. In fact, one of the, the meetings that witnesses have is actually called the Theocratic Ministry School, as obviously you, Stephen, know, and our, our fellow ex-witness listeners. But it only resembles a school. It really is an indoctrination session. Um, people have a piece of Watchtower literature, read a paragraph. There's a question at the end. Who was ever conducting that particular meeting? Ask that question. And invariably, someone in the audience regurgitates either word for word the answer from the paragraph, or if they are more scare quotes, spiritually mature, they will paraphrase it. (laughs) Yes. And and if you can paraphrase, then then you're really, really got this thing. Top dog. Hmm. Top dog, right? So, um, it always bothered me that, that most of the literature only referenced other Watchtower literature. Occasionally, there would be quotes from other people. They frequently, weren't, they frequently were not cited or sourced properly as um, anyone with any academic training is, is taught how to do. And, and that always bugged me. Um, and finally, it reached a point that, you know, I just couldn't silence this anymore. Uh, kind of a, a funny brief side point. Um, so I was an elder for 20 years up till the very end when I, I left the last few years when I would give meeting presentations and I, I was on the meeting almost every night, every meeting. Mm-hmm. Also, I would give public talks, not only in my own home congregation, but in congregations locally once every month or so. I also had parts on some of the larger assemblies. I started censoring myself 
And there were certain doctrines and beliefs that I just wouldn't talk about anymore because I didn't believe them. Hmm. And I've talked to a couple of people who are still in the religion or left soon after Hmm. who heard me give these parts. And I asked them, hey, did you ever notice that I stopped talking about certain things? And they all said, no, they never noticed. They just didn't notice. <clears throat> Anyways, so when when I went to uh, ret- return to university to complete my four year education and get my teaching credential in 2003, I, I had reawakened an academic approach to thinking, to critical thinking, and and, and what real research is. You know, it's yeah. not going on the internet and watching somebody's sister's cousin's boyfriend's hairdresser's YouTube channel. (laughs) Um, And how to recognize reliable sources, credible sources, and how to vet them by comparing them with others. It became increasingly obvious that that the Watchtower literature only superficially resembled education. And so I was in this situation, as I sort of intimated, that I was stuck in a religion, stuck in a cult, couldn't find a way out. By now, I didn't believe almost any of it. All those wonderful things I hoped for, you know, the end of hunger and poverty and crime and living forever, um, I realized those weren't going to happen. And so it was really driving me crazy and sending me into a a state of of mental anxiety and depression, which is very unhealthy, obviously. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very common. I don't think there's any good research on this area, but um, I think it's an area that that would be really interesting to to study how many right. how many people struggle with mental health problems and um, depression and so on. So especially just before they leave, because I think that trying to reconcile these these competing desires and needs is very very difficult. You know you. You have all your family and that's really important to you. But on the other hand, you've got your own, you know, you're trying to be honest uh, about what you believe and you're telling other people this stuff. And so you, you be, you, you're torn apart really, aren't you? I think it's a very, it's a very difficult time. Right. A lot of people just shove those things down. Um, yeah. I, I believe you're right that there's not a lot of research on that. Um, there, there is some, and, and I don't know if this is an appropriate place to to plug the upcoming ICSA conference mm, that absolutely. both you and I will be participating in, and both of us are going to be talking in different ways about the importance of education. And, and that's actually one of the things I, I like to share, how, um, how depression is a common thing in cults because of this cognitive dissonance and the denial of our authentic self. For those of us who join the cult as as adults, regardless of our age, we we have to take who we were and subsume that to the the cult author um, identity, the cult identity, and the authority of the cult. For those like yourself who were raised in it, you never really get to figure out who the hell you are until you leave the cult. Right. And, and so that's some. I know that's a much different process mm-hmm. for you than it was for me. For me, it was one of rediscovery. Yeah, and I know that was hella hard. For, for you and others who leave it, who were born into a cult, it's figuring out who you are for the very first time. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, each situation has its own misery, you know. Um, I think um, that that is a particular difficulty for born-ins, and it's something that I feel very passionately about to keep talking yes. about. Um, but I also think um, 
uh, we discussed this on our one episode before, but um, if you've come into it, then there's also an element there of, um, you know, you've already made a decision and you're having to now admit that you were wrong about something that you made a decision about 20, 30 years ago. Um, and and the whole, you know, um, uh, in for a penny, in for a pound, as they say, you know, um, in other words, I, I've done it now. I've put so much of my life into this and I've made my decision. I'm going to stick with it. That in itself must be quite difficult because, you know, you, you made a choice. And you're having to admit that you were wrong about that choice that you made however many years ago. So I think that's that's a special type of difficulty too. Well, well that's an important um, observation. And I think that is one of the rationalizations that mm-hmm. many people use to, to remain in a cult, um, in for a penny, in for a pound. There's actually a, a name for that logical fallacy, the sunk cost fallacy. You, I can see you're familiar with that. I was trying to remember it and I couldn't remember it in my in my terrible memory. Yes, that's it. Right. And it, it's actually a, a term that, that comes from the field of economics and uh, risk aversion and psychology. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a common thing, as you said, that keeps people in. But it is just that. It's a logical fallacy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, at some point, we have to rip the Band-Aid off. And, cut and our losses, as they say. Cut your losses, right? And, and mm. that's an important thing in the business world. You know, mm. If you have a failing business, it doesn't make sense to keep pouring money into it unless there's a, a legitimate, valid, and evidence-based reason that it's, it can be saved and, is in fact, is worth saving. Yeah, so that's a that's a great um, segue, I think, into mm-hmm. uh, something I wanted to ask you, which was, so we talked about critical thinking, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's easy, it just trips off the tongue that um, that phrase, critical thinking, sure. <laughs> um, and so I'd like to explore what that actually means because I think if you ask most people, they would say, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm a critical thinker. I, I think logically and rationally. I I weigh up um, what's happening and I make a, a logical decision. So um, how can we try and understand critical thinking from an educator as, such as yourself? Well, that, that's a great question. And as a high school teacher, and by the way, I, I've been a teacher for three, going on three decades now, and I've taught every level from the little kids up to um, even young adults. Mm-hmm. So critical thinking can be defined a lot of different ways. As, as you mentioned, a lot of people use the term and don't really understand it, which is ironic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But for instance, one definition, and I'm looking at it right now, is that the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment uh, or other things that are involved could be applying what we know, analyzing critically, evaluating, taking different thoughts and and synthesizing them. There's a lot to it. Um, And without going too much into the details, getting sidetracked, um, I teach in a unique setting. I teach in what's called an independent study program. The the program is, is part of a regular school district. It's a public school. The independent part is the way the students work. They work mostly on their own. I have a caseload of about 28 students. We meet one-on-one once a week, and I'm their teacher for every subject. Um, Clearly, no teacher can be an expert in in everything, but the irony there is that we expect our students to become proficient in all these subjects, so it's really not all that unreasonable that as a teacher, 
with a lot more experience and education that I should be able to teach them diverse subjects. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to teach them English, history, geography, health, math, all the sciences. And the sciences, have, I've added that to my credential, everything from earth sciences and astronomy to biology, chemistry, physics. And one of the things that's really cool about my teaching gig is that we can make connections between different subjects. And I know a lot of teachers in a traditional classroom would maybe like to do that, but they don't always know, say you're an English teacher, they don't always know what the history class down the hallway is covering right now. And and for instance, I share a room with two other teachers who are also very experienced, qualified educators. And one of them is a man named Ty DeLong. He's got his degree and his specialty is in English literature. And so a couple of years ago, we spent some time making sure our social sciences, history, geography, world history, U.S. history, Mm -hmm. uh, made sure that they correlate it with our English um, subjects, the novels we're reading, the short stories, the skills. And so it's really easy to make connections. But we can often make very powerful connections to things you might not think are so closely related like chemistry, for instance. Uh, So many students like to ask the question, Mr. O'Brien, when am I ever going to need to balance a net ionic equation in my life? Well, I usually head that off early in the semester by saying, hey, look, in this subject, we're going to learn things that are very difficult. And frankly, you're not ever going to use some of them again in life unless you become a chemist. But you will learn skills thinking skills that you will use throughout all your life. Uh, For instance, that net ionic equation, and the chemists that are listening will get this. It's a multi-step, very difficult problem that requires students to remember what they learned in all the previous six chapters. You you can't just forget it. Okay, I studied for chapter five. I got the test. I did well. Now I can go to chapter six and forget everything else I learned. That won't work. And so I asked them, what do you suppose will happen throughout your life? Do you think you'll ever get complex problems that will require you to imply or or employ mathematical reasoning, to be able to read maybe a contract, to be able to understand the psychology of the situation you're in? And they all, of course, say, that'll happen all the time, right? So, So that's really where these analytical skills come in. In English literature, if you write an essay, you have to come up with a thesis statement. Well, it's no coincidence that the last six, six letters of, of um, hypothesis is thesis. And so in science, a hypothesis is when we see something, we observe something, we come up with a tentative explanation, and then yep. we design experiments or do real research to try and figure out if our hypothesis is incorrect or maybe there's some evidence to support it. And, and so it's only by working through a bunch of different problems in a lot of different subjects, all the diverse subjects, literature can help us to understand what it means to be human through the arts. History helps us understand what it means to be a human by looking at what have people actually done. The hard scientist teaches to think about things critically. As, as Carl Sagan once said, science is not a body of knowledge so much as it is a way of thinking about things, a way of understanding things, whether it's the biological sciences, the the hard sciences like physics or chemistry, or the so-called soft sciences like psychology and sociology, where we try to understand human behavior, whether we're looking at the behavior of individuals or behavior of groups. And and obviously those two things interrelate because 
groups are made up of individuals and as individuals, we all belong to a number of different groups. And so, um, so hopefully going from the short answer of trying to be objective and analyze things to the more long-winded one. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question to ask. So, um, yeah, um, f thank you for, for that. It's, um, I, I mean, for me, I, I think, I think what I, so I, it took me a lot longer than you um, to, to get into higher education. So I, I, I kind of, uh, I got into my career. Um, that was where I sunk my efforts, and then it was really only the last decade that I started to um, to do my degree. Um, and what what I found was, um, so I did a psychology degree, and what what I found was I was going into it thinking, I'm really going to understand, um, you know, how people think, and um, that the process is involved, and you know, I, I believed that I would have this this huge great pool of knowledge about how it works you know and actually what i think all subjects are like this to a degree but psychology is particularly like this what you find is um actually what happens is you learn that we still don't know an awful lot in fact what right. we know is much less than what we don't know um and there's a lot of disagreement in the field so so actually you have to start coming to terms with somebody makes a claim um, somebody has a hypothesis okay what's the evidence for that and there's different levels of evidence you know there's some evidence that that you take more seriously and there's other evidence that is okay it's still evidence but it it's not as weighty as this other evidence and right. and i think those are the those are the skills i think education really um helps you with if you're thinking about transferable skills from um you know being brought up believing that man was 6,000 years old um, and created in the Garden of Eden, um, you know, 6,000 years ago, to coming to terms with evolution is a great example of there's a claim here. Where's the evidence for it? That's right. And you've got a claim that, that uh, we were created 6,000 years ago. Let's have a look at the evidence. There's a claim that we... Uh, like every other animal on the earth is a product of evolution. Where's the evidence for it? And I think that's for me, that's the, that's the bit is whilst yes. we're never going to be able to become an expert in every single field. I think just having that, um, that, uh, that ability to say, okay, well that's a claim. Um, let's have a look at the evidence and let's weigh up which bits of these evidence actually, you know, what, what are the weights of them? Um, you know, there's lots of claims currently around all sorts of things. You know, um, oh, yes, I look up in the sky and there's a vapor trail from an aeroplane. I can see that. That's a thing that's up there. Now, some people claim that that's um, some government scheme to make us all sterile by spraying us with some chemical. That's a claim. Chemtrail. Um, I, exactly. I would like to know where the evidence for that is then. Um, so let's have a look at the evidence. And I think that's really important to learn because if we don't, when we leave a high control group that has told us everything we should believe, it's actually quite difficult to know what to believe. Well, that, that's a really valid point. Um, and there's a couple of, of things that perhaps we could explore. One of the things that was very important to me, and I'm sure to everyone who leaves a group like this, who's who's willing to do the work. And by the way, um, 
lot of people leave a religion or, or a cult, whether it's a religious cult, a psychological cult, a business, political cult, whatever it is. The, the, the science and the research shows that most people who leave don't usually leave actually over doctrine. They usually leave because they've been mistreated or it, it's causing them just so much internal anxiety um, that it, it's just they've, they've got to go for their, their mental health sake. Um, that being said, so when you leave, a lot of people are vulnerable to joining another cult or another high control group or getting into an unhealthy codependent relationship because it's familiar and that's the danger of cults. Superficially, they all seem so different. But as you and I have talked previously, um, that that you you lift off, you open the hood, and underneath the hood, they're all all pretty similar, similar, and they're manipulative ways of controlling people. And, and so then, when we when we leave and we're trying to figure stuff out, as you were saying, a really important thing is to learn the difference between facts and evidence, and what those facts and evidence mean. And in working with young people, I have found that it's not hard to teach people to do this, but it doesn't come naturally. And so, and it has to be done a lot. And again, in different subjects, let's do this in science. Let's, let's do this in chemistry and physics. Let, let's do this in history. Let, let's look at historical documents and see what actually happened. And let's do this in literature. You can read a passage in a book, but, but what does that mean? What can you get from that? And the different levels of evidence you said, some evidence is far more compelling than others. Some is just suggest. A lot of people like to use anecdotes and anecdotes are intriguing, but they're not particularly conclusive. Exactly. And we, we know about um, anyone with any scientific training at all knows about outliers and people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories and, and other absurd ideas will often point to the outliers. And it's like, Okay, that's interesting. We can talk mm -hmm. about that. But what does the core evidence suggest, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. I think it's so important. I really do. And I, I don't. Um, I, I don't think it's right to imagine that. Um, I, th I think there is a suspicion that scientists um, think they know everything. You know, and no. again, I think this is a this is a trope that when you're raised in a, or when you're indoctrinated into a cult, um, there's a trope that, that says, you know, these scientists, they think they know everything. They don't know anything, you know? Um, but actually what science, good scientists know that there's loads that we don't know. And so actually the process is, is to, to try and understand as much as we can. And everything is always tentative to some degree, you know. So if there's evidence that comes up that says, actually, do you know what? Um, there's some there's some new evidence that we've identified now through more science that's allowed us to see something we didn't see before. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Let's have a look at that. But it's not through a revelation or through new light that's been shed upon eight men in new york it's it's a a process of searching asking more questions um and the other thing i like to say about science is you know the scientists they don't always like each other very much um and that the job their job is to try and often is to try and show that the other guy has got it wrong which is well, brilliant I, scientists are humans too absolutely <laughs> 
<laughs> but that helps, doesn't it? Because you're you're then able to you've it's got to be tested. The idea is constantly being tested and retested and argued right. and so on. Right. So one of the things that we hear a lot, um, people will say things like, "Well, it's only a theory." And that yes. comes from a misunderstanding of what the word theory even means, mm. specifically how scientists will use it. For many years, I worked in a law firm. In fact, my mother, who's now retired, was a lawyer and served as a judge. And lawyers will use the word theory in a way that a scientist would never use it. For, for a lawyer, a theory is more how a scientist would say a preliminary hypothesis. Mm. But as you all know, as a trained psychologist, a hypothesis is a tentative explanation and it could be from the very first explanation, which could be completely wrong, to um, over time, as evidence is gathered, and if and when and only if a consensus develops among the scientific community who's really working on, on and in that field, then it can be advanced to the level of a theory. But as all scientists know, and anyone who, who knows about the scientific methods and methodology, we can never positively say that we are absolutely right about anything and any theory could be wrong. Hmm. So if you have well-established theories, say the theory of evolution, at this point, there is such overwhelming evidence, uh, not only uh, from archeological evidence, but now in the last few decades through genetic studies and so forth, there's just so much ev evidence to support the, the theory generally that the chances of it being overturned in, in whole it is it is not going to happen, but we could be wrong about minor details of just, I remember a few months ago reading that there's some intriguing evidence that showed that there were humans in Northern Africa, maybe 300,000 years ago, where previously it was um, postulated that humans evolved from Homo sapiens from, from prior species more like one to 200,000 years ago. But does that overturn the whole idea of evolution? Absolutely not. It just refines our understanding of it. Um, another thing that I was I was making a note here as you're talking, it was so interesting um, to me. The difference between, say, religious beliefs and scientific knowledge is that religion and religious beliefs are revealed, usually from some guru who claims to have gotten it from God. But by the way, he's the guy that we got to listen to. That's very convenient, is it mm, not? Isn't it? <laughs> so in, in a religion, knowledge is supposedly revealed through divine revelation, where in science, knowledge is discovered through a rigorous process, peer review, and of course, scientists are humans too, and subject to all the foibles and failings of, mm. of us mere humans. But it's really important to understand that that we could be wrong about things. And, and this is the thing going back to that comment from my friend Paul earlier about witnesses have an answer for everything. And, and there's that famous saying that I, I'd rather have uh, questions that can't be answered rather than answers that can't be questioned. When you're in a cult, you are not allowed to question things, at least not openly. And, and that's a big cause of, I think, a lot of anxiety, depression, and cognitive dissonance yeah. So I'm not sure how it was for you, but I know how it was for myself and others I've talked to who've left the religion. At some point, you think you're the only one in the religion who doesn't believe it, and you're surrounded by everybody else believing it, and why am I the only one? But then you come to realize that probably most of them don't believe it, but everybody's afraid, terrified even, to say, I think this is all bullshit, because you'll be kicked out and lose your family and all your friends. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it is always a really interesting question. And, of course, we never know. Uh, it's hard enough to know our own mind, let alone okay. know um, other people's. But um, you do wonder sometimes how much... Um, one of the interesting things I've done, we've done on this podcast is we've almost collected people's metaphors um, of what it's like to uh, gradually leave, you know, and, and all the doubts that start happening, you know, for some people, it's a, it's a bag with holes in it for other people. It's a shelf with uh, too many books on it and it starts to fall down. Um, so um, somebody talks about a crack in the windscreen that just gradually keeps growing. These right. are all brilliant metaphors. and But I think what they all um, are testimony to is this process where, which I think a lot of cult members are going through as we speak, which is, you know, oh, there's that. Well, you talked about it yourself. There's this thing I'm not sure about. I'll tell you what, I'll just park that. I'll put that to one side. Right. Because, you know, I can accept everything else, but this, this I'm not sure about. And then something else, and I'll put that over to one side as well. And then gradually you you find that you've just lost the cohesion of the whole thing. And that's when eventually it's reached its critical mass. Well, um, in fact, it is it is incoherent. Yes. And that's, uh, and that's, I think at some level, I think a lot of us know that or knew that, but we either put those doubts to one side, mm-hmm. um, or we just, just ignored them. We stopped looking at them entirely and, um, just, just wanted, wanted to believe. I mean, I, I've talked about this before on my, uh, on my own story, but you know, I would, I would uh, at night pray to Jehovah begging him to make me believe it. <laughs> well, <laughs> apparently know, it didn't work. <laughs> he didn't answer that prayer, did he? Um, but this is the thing that I don't think, you know, a lot of people, uh, perhaps they don't realize the the difficulty of actually leaving it. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a painful um, thing. It's a very difficult thing, yeah. Um, but it is, it is, it's coming to terms with the doubts that you've had for many years it's actually looking at them square, squarely in the face and saying, right, okay, I'm going to sort you out now once and for all. And as soon as you've done that, yeah. then I think you're on the road out. Well, that's an important point. And so um, we have to come to a place where we have, um, for lack of a better term, the, the personal, and I'm going to say moral, as well as intellectual in- integrity as well as, frankly, the courage to look those doubts square in the face. Um, as a psychologist, I know you're well aware of the, the documented phenomenon of cognitive dissonance. And, and so many people, when, when they have two conflicting or more conflicting ideas in their, their head, they, they will just shove the dom- they'll allow the dominant one to shove the, the recessive one away, e- even if the dominant one has no evidence to support it, and the, the challenging one has all the evidence, but especially when there's a lot on the line personally, as we've, we've talked about it, you know, if you're in a cult and you question it and leave it, you are going to lose your family and yeah. your friends. And, and hardly anyone leaves a cult with their family intact, hardly anyone. And, and so, so we know that. So it takes a great deal of courage because the cost is high. Um, so this to me is the interesting thing about going next. We've talked about deconstructing our yeah. belief system, which frankly, at least for me, I never believed most of it 
hmm. even though I wanted to, or as you prayed to Jehovah, you know, let me believe this. And hmm. you know, that, that prayer wasn't answered. Then we have to figure out, well, what the hell, what the heck do I believe now? And, and coming to terms with that, and that, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I, I have an essay I wrote on the subject that um, is about spiritual but not religious. Later on, I'll, I'll share that with you. Maybe we can make it available to any one of the listeners mm, who are interested. Sure. But yeah. but it, it has to be, I think, a, a personal journey to figure out because religion is comfortable. It has answers. To find your own spirituality, you have to find those answers for yourself. And a lot of times there isn't one. And this is a thing, going back to that thing about witnesses have an answer for everything. A lot of people are not comfortable with ambiguity or, or being able to have the Zen-like state of acceptance that you're not ever going to get an answer to that question. Can you be okay with that? Mm. And I know for myself, it, it took me quite a while to get there. Um, but there are a lot of benefits but you have to do things like find your own community because a religion or any kind of a, a, a group provides a community. And for many of us, we left, we're all alone for the first time and uh, we don't know what our beliefs are. There, there's a, a great quote I found a few years ago from a former witness, a man named Nathan Query. He said, leaving a cult means leaving your entire life behind and starting alone with no safety net. And for a lot of people, that's just too damn scary. But if you're willing to do that, and for those of us that, that have, and it is a process, it's it's a journey, right? And it, it takes time. We have to do the work. And people who just leave and don't do the work, they can go for years and be in that same set, set of misery. But then we can discover and build a beautiful life that is our own life. And even though we might be lonely and alone for a while, if we can learn to, to embrace solitude, that can be a very healing thing for us too. Learning to, to love ourselves by ourselves and figure out who we are is a much different thing. I, I, think, I think those of us who have been there have discovered that solitude is essential for self-discovery. It allows us time to reflect and find meaning. And it's also a sign of emotional maturity. One of the problems of, of being in a cult, and cults deliberately, no matter what cult it is, they keep you busy, a lot of busy work. Because when you're so busy doing this or that and running around and especially witnesses, you know, you've got to make a living somehow. And then anything that seems like a moment of free time for yourself, you're either at a meeting or you're out in the proselytizing work or you're preparing for a meeting. You, you don't have time to just reflect and think. And discover, who am I? Who do I want to be? What, what, what can I do on this journey of self-discovery to find what's important and what's meaningful for me? And how can I build a relationship with, with other people um, who are kindred spirits? The, not people I'm forced to call my brothers and sisters because we're in the same church, many of which that, frankly, we would never hang out with socially because we're just different. Yeah. But but find people who we have genuine, similar interests and values, and maybe not even the same beliefs, because interestingly, it's nice to be with people who have diverse points of view that can challenge us and, and not be threatened by that personally. I'm, I'm fond of saying um, 
I like to keep my circle small and I'd rather have people who love me for who I am, who in all capital letters, people who love me for who I am, not what I pretended to believe. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting description of a of a journey. I mean, everything that the cult does, if you think about what cults do, they they they're very good at some things. You know, I'm, I'm collaborating at the moment with um, another podcast um, called The World of Work, and and uh, obviously I'm interested in organisations and and the psychology of that. Um, but what you what you can see with cults as organisations is that they're very good at creating um, a feeling of meaning and purpose in a person's life, and they're also very good at creating a sense of community. Um, but of course, these are um, these are tools that the cult is using to keep you in. When you leave that group. Um, of course, they're the they're well two of the most difficult things for you because you've lost that meaning and purpose and you've lost that sense of community. So that's, that's right. why it's so difficult. And um, you know that you've described a way of sidestepping that for some in some way where you say, okay, well I don't need to rush into um, you know finding a replacement for this worldwide brotherhood. Actually. Um, there are other ways for me to be in the world, not necessarily as part of a, a very intense uh, cult. And actually meaning and purpose is something that, you know, we might go our whole lives without discovering that in its to its full degree, but that's part of the journey. That's actually part of what life is about um, in itself. So, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. And th- those are two of the most difficult things, I think, to do when you leave. That's right. And, and it's work and it's hard work and it's a yeah. lot of work and, and it takes time. Um, I mentioned earlier about anecdotes are intriguing, but don't necessarily prove anything, mm. uh, but they often are, are good cause for exploring it further. I'm going to share two brief anecdotes. One was uh, the first one's about a young man who I knew when I first moved to where I live now, Moore Park. Um, and this was about 20 ish years ago. He was a teenager at the time, 14, and he had been raised in the religion, raised as a witness. Uh, he was third generation witness on one side, fourth on the other, right? So he had a, a long heritage in this particular group. And he left the religion bit by bit when when he was 20, 19 or 20, a, kind of against his parents' will, but they really didn't have much choice in the matter. He decided he wanted to go to college. He went to a very prestigious university, UCLA, and he earned a degree in engineering. So he's a super intelligent guy. When he was at university, he quit going to meetings, and he had a lot of emotional turmoil after that. We uh, we didn't reconnect for many years after this. So ironically, he actually left the religion in one way long before I did. But he didn't really re- he didn't really leave it until after I did, because he isolated himself from doing the work of deconstructing all those beliefs. And so when we reconnected, um, probably around 2012 or 13, so I was pretty well along on my journey out. It had been four-ish years since I had left. 
and it had been more than a decade from him, but he had not started the work at all. And so um, he was living in San Diego at the time. He, he came up here uh, to where I live one weekend, and he, he told me later that he was so afraid that when he walked in the door, I would be sitting here with three elders, and it was a trap. <laughs> but, but, of course, it wasn't. Um, and, and so we've had many conversations since, and, and now he's in a really good place. But it's, it's really struck me that he could have not been going to any meetings, not having any association with the cult, his parents had effectively cut him off and had very, very little co communication with him, which is so sad. I mean, he's smart. He's intelligent. He's he's good looking, hardworking. He's like a lot of families would go, that's the ideal son, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't want anything to do with him mm -hmm. only because he didn't go to meetings. He had not been formally kicked mm -hmm. out of the organization. He hadn't written any letters saying, I don't want to be part of this. He just quit going. And when they asked him why, he would not tell them. He just said, I have my reasons, basically. Um, but, but the point, even though he was not associated with the group for a decade, by not doing the work, he hadn't begun to rebuild his life and get on the path to, to healing and, and really finding out who he is. Um, a similar and much shorter story. Um, in 2017, I went to my first ICSA conference in, in Bordeaux, France. And that was when a great experience for me on so many levels. And that was when I, I came to realize that, hey, cults can be very different superficially, but really they're all pretty much the same. I met a man who was about my age and he had been in a neo-Nazi white supremacist group when he was actually in his 20s. And I, I think he left in his early mid 20s. I, I know he told me at the mm -hmm. time I've forgotten and he said it wasn't until many decades later that he started to do the work to help him to realize, hey, I was in a cult. I need to, to sort this out. I need to deconstruct why it was I was in that. And even though I left it a long time ago, what do I believe now? And so it, it's, it's, you can't just leave. You have to leave, <laughs> but that's the first step. And then you have to do the hard work of figuring out and replacing those false, those harmful beliefs, a lot of which, and a lot of cults implant and indoctrinate us with beliefs that, that send the message that you're not valuable, you're not worthy. Yeah. Uh, fundamentalist religions of, of every stripe mm -hmm. are, are, are just, it's, it's a core thing. You know, the whole idea of salvation is you, you can't do this on your own. Absolutely. Yeah, right? You're a sinner. It, you, you can't do anything. You need, you need redemption. Absolutely. That's right. And, and once we realize that that was all a manipulative thing made up, then we can begin to realize that, okay, we're not perfect, but, but nobody's perfect. But that doesn't mean I can't be better. One of my favorite ideas, and I got this from Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist who focuses on the origins of morality. Mm -hmm. um, in, in his work, The Righteous Mind, he talks about how he looked at uh, what do philosophers, archaeologists, and psychologists all say about where do, where do morals come from? Where does morality come from? And one of the intriguing conclusions, or maybe it was just an aside that he made that really resonated and stuck with me, is that philosophers like to talk about and pontificate and ponder, as humans, what could we be and maybe what should we be, which I think are legitimate courses of dialogue and conversation. Mm -hmm. But he said psychologists are more interested in what we actually are. <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. 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 That's um, that. That's good. Yeah. I, I think. Um, I, I guess that that that's relevant to different people leave in different ways. Right. And I guess there's there's some that hang on to some of those beliefs. So we 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 talk about physically out, mentally in people, for instance, right. um, and that can be very painful if you have left, but you've not done that work, and actually you still feel like the end is still coming. So you're you're still uh, waiting for Armageddon, and you're seeing demons behind every um, you know every magazine shelf or whatever, and um, you know that that must be very difficult for others, yes. um, like certainly like myself and possibly yourself. By the time you've gone, you've gone through that process. You no longer believe it. That's why you left. So I think I think there's lots of different ways to leave, and and then right. for others, I think if you leave when you're young. So I remember in the congregation, you know, sometimes youngsters would leave when they were like sixteen or seventeen or eighteen, and they they just knew that they wanted nothing to do with it. And although they they perhaps went along with some went to meetings and so on. They, they were, it was obvious they were never going to stay as a witness. Um, and for them, I guess that's a different experience again, really. So I think it can be very different for different people. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, there, there's a quote by um, an educator, Paolo Freire, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he made the statement, we make the road by walking. And mm. I've pondered that a lot because to me, I think about this as a journey life is a journey, not a destination, right? And just as there are many pathways into a cult, the various cults, mm. there are also, um, as you were just saying, there are many pathways out of that. And some people get stuck along the way. You know, it's like they're broken down on the roadside and, uh, you know, there's no roadside assistance and they're just stranded there eternally, right? So although it's good to have a destination, maybe goals in life, we, we have to focus on getting there is part of it. And we might not ever get there, but we have to focus on the journey itself is in and of itself, the important part. And that's a journey, as we talked about a little earlier, it's really a lot of self self-discovery. You know, what are the things that are truly important to us? What are the things that we, we can still do in our life? So, um, so I returned to university when I was in my early 40s. I didn't leave the cult till I was almost 50. I, I was in my mid-50s when I got my master's degree. So I, I've heard a lot of ex-witnesses, and this is probably true with other people, who, who feel like they lost so many opportunities being in the cult. I mean, I, I was in that cult from what some people would say my most productive years. Mm. So I was 20 three when I joined the religion. I was in it for 25 years. So people who are witnesses or ex-witnesses know this and people who aren't don't. Uh, not only do does the Jehovah's Witness religion discourage higher education, it really discourages people from doing things like planning for the future and saving for a retirement, mm -hmm. having a good job. It's like be a window washer, you know, be a pool man or whatever. And, and I want to be clear here. There's nothing wrong with good, honest, legitimate work. But, but the overarching idea is don't do anything for yourself. Don't plan for the future because mm -hmm. as that awake magazine, which my ex-wife shared with me that, that led to me leaving, you don't need to do that because Paradise is going to be here any day now. Around and it's the corner. 
it's going to be it well it's been around the corner since 1879 you know that's a heck of a long time to be around the corner so so a lot of people express frustration for that and, and i certainly get it i, I yeah. lost a lot of opportunities but you know there's a, a well-known saying that's variously attributed it's it's never too late to become who you might have been and, and sure we can't go back and jump on a time machine and relive those things and and frankly if we could would it really be worth it we are who who we are now and where we are now, but we do have options. There are still things we can do, right? There's yeah, still- I think that's right. Uh, I, I I agree with that. And um, but I also think it's okay to feel angry. Um, I think it's absolutely okay to feel all those frustrations that you've yeah. lost all those years and so on. We've talked yeah. about this, you know, on the podcast too. So that's completely natural, completely right. normal. Yes, um, I agree. But, I, you I know, um, the idea that I didn't think that those were normal. No, no, I, I didn't think that. It's process, right? You lose absolutely. your religion, you lose your family. That is a legit grieving a loss. Absolutely. And, and you know, on social media, you see people at various different stages, sure. really. You know, sometimes you, you can see that the person is at that process where they are so fucking angry you know right. and I, I completely understand that i've absolutely been there um and i guess to to old timers talking about this um i mean i you know i count myself as that um anyway um maybe the fact that you know we can look back and say um it is difficult it is quite understandable to be angry yes but there is a way through there is a way through. Everybody's is different, but there is a way through. And for us, it was education, but for somebody else, it, it might be something entirely different. Um, and, you know, that, that bit of hope, I think, is, is kind of an important message to get across. Well, it is. And, and getting to know various people who have left this cult and even others, right? It might be pursuing that career that someone couldn't do when they were in the cult. Yeah. might be getting that degree. It might even be taking up a hobby that they were told that they didn't have time and you'll be able to do that in paradise. Uh, you know, pick up a guitar and learn how to play. Pick up a paintbrush and learn how to paint, right? Yeah. Um, and, and do it for the joy of doing it rather than any any arbitrary goals. Yeah, and- we, yeah that's true. We interviewed um, Jilly Jenkinson. She's a, a UK-based... Um, counselor she's um she specializes in this um in helping people who have suffered from religious trauma and um being in cults and so on um and she talked about how just trying things yeah try it if you if you find that you know actually you've got a bit of a natural gift for painting then great if you find you're rubbish at it that's fine (laughs) move on to do something else you know and i think that's great advice really well, right, and why do we do things if we enjoy it? Even if we're, exactly. even if other people don't think we're great at it, if if Absolutely. we enjoy it, that's enough reason right there. I wanted to, if I could, for a mm-hmm. second, and only briefly loop back to this idea about um, stages of grief and anger when when we leave. At one point, and I, I've I think this is probably pretty universal. There's this intense emotion and feeling of betrayal when because we trusted this group. You know, particularly if it's a religious cult, we trusted them that, that they were right, that they had the answers, that, that this was going to be good. And we invested so much time and effort and energy and emotion into yeah. it. And then to realize that we've spent 
decades and lost so much. It, it is it is an intense feeling of betrayal. And we all had the absolute right to to be, as you said, so fucking angry. Very eloquent, Stephen. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's the way to describe it. Mm. But do we want to stay stuck in our anger forever? And, and I know for many people, the idea of, of forgiveness can be a bit of a trigger um, when it comes to to this thing. You know, should we forgive the people who abused us religiously or spiritually? Only everyone can only make that decision for themselves. The only bit of useful advice I've ever heard on that was if you forgive, it's not for them, it's for you. And only so you don't hold on to that anger because that's yeah. unhealthy. It's a, it's an interesting area. And, and yeah, I, I think um, I, I don't, I purposely don't talk about my family. So I'm careful about what I say, but um, yes, I, I felt, I suppose when you're raised, obviously not only are you angry with the organization, actually you're, you're angry with your parents because they're the people that you trust, obviously to tell you what's true. So, um, I think that's one of the most difficult bits to overcome. Um, I think it, for me, I had to accept that, um, and I was very, very angry with them for a long time, but, um, I think understanding that, you know, they were also victims of the same cult and therefore they did what they thought was right, you know. And, and I know it's obvious that they didn't do it just because they wanted to hurt me. No. But just So there's one thing about mentally knowing that or intellectually knowing that and also feeling it. So I think that takes a bit of time. That took some time for me anyway to be able to say, okay you know i i know that what they told me wasn't true i know that it was a load of lies but they believed it and so you know can i can i forgive them um and i think that's yeah so i think everybody's different on that and yeah um no one should um and again i know you didn't say that but no one should should encourage somebody to forgive um somebody that's abused them but if you want to do it, then then it, it can be a way forward uh, if that's that works for you. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and even if a person uh, chooses to forgive, forgiveness um, is more about understanding and and not absolving or or yes. excusing. Yeah. Um, but if someone decides that they're not going to forgive, well, they have every right to do that too. Absolutely. I would just say with the, the caveat that holding on to anger and resentment can be a caustic thing that's corrosive mm-hmm. to your own soul and can prevent you from, from spiritual growth. Um, so one of the things that, um, let's see if I can, can find this quickly, about holding on to, to resentment and things like this, so I don't, are you familiar with the psychologist Peter Kinderman? I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so he talks about how there are certain core dysfunctional beliefs that, that we might have, um, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about the world, our place in it, and how the consequent negative thoughts that come from that can actually play a key role in the development 
of some mental disorders, particularly depression. And one of the, the key things I took away from, from reading his research and similar research is that ruminating on things is particularly bad for us. And so that's an important thing. And we all have to get there. And, and certainly when we're deep in that early stages of leaving, the sense of betrayal, the anger, it, it's going to be all consuming, right? And hopefully over time, that becomes less and less as we're, we replace those negative thoughts with positive thoughts. And, and here's an important point that I, I certainly was valuable to me. And when I've been able to share this with others, it seemed like it was helpful to them too. We can't control what happened to us. We can't change the past. We can't control other people even now or in the future. We do have some control over how we respond to what's happened. And we do have some measure of control about how we think about things and what we think about. So when those negative thoughts are coming into our mind, and this is just a big thing with cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. you know, when you have a negative thought, you can dwell on that or you can choose to replace it with something else. It doesn't mean that negative thought isn't valid. valid. It doesn't make it go away. But when we choose to think about more positive things moving forward, then then we're taking care of our mental health rather than indulging in things that frankly are a form of mental illness. Mm, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's good. Good advice. I think. Um, okay. So um, we're, we're coming to the end of our, um, of our little chat. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Daniel. It's been great. Um, so one of the things you mentioned uh, briefly um, throughout was the, the uh, Ixa, um conference so i should just say at this point in, in the uk there's a bit of confusion um because we had a in the uk there's been a an investigation into child sex abu abuse uh, in religious settings which has been called ixa um so when we talk about ixa i think um lots of xjw's think we're talking about that so this is the international cultic studies association it has nothing to do with that investigation this is a um a uh, a charity that that's that's been going for many years since 1979 looking at cultic groups and um uh, all sorts of all sorts of groups actually from religions to businesses that are cultic and so on and so on so they they hold a conference every year um over the last couple of years for obvious reasons it's been an online one which has had some advantages actually it's meant that you know I've been able to attend them much more easily and uh, both you and I at different times are going to be presenting at the next one so um, what what's the the theme of your uh, presentation Daniel uh, yes thank you great question um, and by the way just to emphasize that I'm glad you made that clarification on the, the two mm. X's this one has one eye ICSA right. the other one has two eyes that's right um, so I will be presenting on the subject that I title Pathways to Healing with the, the subtitle Rebuilding Your Life After Leaving a Cult. And some of the main themes will be involving the role of psychoeducation, which is a fancy word for what the fields of psychology have learned about what we can do to educate ourselves to deal with things such as we've been talking about, right? Um dealing with the things after a cult, examining our own beliefs, discovering our authentic self, 
discovering our authentic self, whether it's who we were before we joined the cult or trying to figure out who we would have been if we'd never been raised in one. And dealing with isolation and loneliness in positive ways, embracing solitude and moving forward as we're on that journey, on that pathway, out of out of the cult and into the rest of our life. Brilliant. So that sounds really interesting. I'm going to look forward to that. Um, it's, they've just started to uh, take um, or sell tickets, I, I do believe, to the conference. So if any of our listeners want to um, attend that virtually, so it's all being done through virtual through zoom and so on which is is great because it means anywhere in the world that you can you can sit and listen to these um these uh, lectures and panels and presentations um then obviously everybody's free to do that i'll put the link actually on the on the show notes to the uh the conference so anybody wants to do that feel free to do so uh daniel thank you very much for joining us today really enjoyed it i'm sure our listeners will um, also have enjoyed that conversation um daniel o'brien thank you very much for joining us today my pleasure thank you for having me on Stephen. i look forward to talking to you again in the future and being a co-presenter with you not at the same time but at the upcoming ixa conference Brilliant. indeed thank you what should i think about is an evil sheep production <laughs> <laughs>